This morning's scripture comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 15 through 40. And you can find this on page 904 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. John 18, 15 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, who have heard me, what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus, standing by, struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas, who sent him, bound, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back out to the Jews and told them, 
I have found no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. My wife, Miriam, would not allow me to start this sermon the way that I wanted to this morning. I wanted to start today with a Name That Tune game featuring courtroom dramas from the late 70s and early 80s. Because I spent much of my childhood in my growing up years with parents and grandparents watching Nick at Night and watching things like Perry Mason and Ironside. Those were my jam. Or the Sunday night Columbo movie was always a go-to in my family. Columbo and Popcorn. But I think my favorite had to be Matlock on TBS. Matlock was my man. He was hard to beat. I guess I could sing the theme songs for those shows to you right now, but I'm going to save you the agony this morning. But today's text in John 18 has all the courtroom drama and pieces of a high-profile case. And I think we're all going to be a little surprised by who's actually on trial in this text. From the outside, it looks one way, but there's a much more compelling and, I think, ironic subtext going on here. And undercurrent that by the time we finish today, will I hope become clear to each of us. Of course, if you've already looked at your bulletin today, the cat's already out of the bag. But here we are. Desperation of the accusers. There's desperation of the accusers trying to find dirt on the defendant, Jesus, in the 11th hour. There's this collusion between the Roman government and the Jewish religious elite. This is a story of a betrayal of leadership, of how Judaism's priests abandoned all pretense of devotion to God and decided to conspire with the Roman military to kill the central threat to their power, Jesus. And all of this is colored by the raw emotions of the accusers, the deafening silence of the defendant, Jesus, followed by the passionate, colorful denial of Jesus by his closest confidants because they were fearful that they were going to suffer the same fate as Jesus, so they clammed up. Or worse, denied him. And this, this is such a dramatic scene. The drama is so thick here. The fate of mankind is swinging in the balance. This text calls us all out and demands our attention, and it also demands a verdict from us in this courtroom. So as we walk through the text this morning, we're going to encounter at least two different kinds of witnesses at the trial. I want to encourage you to see if you fall into one of these two categories this morning. So there's two witnesses, but there's also sort of like three mini trials that Jesus has to go through here. Jesus goes before Annas, before Caiaphas, and then before Pilate. Annas, who is Jesus' first stop there in verse 13, was Caiaphas's father-in-law. Not long before now, he had been the high priest, but he had been demoted. And so Caiaphas is the current high priest. These are the two Jewish leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, in this account. And then once the Jews have sort of uh, moved past the red tape of bringing Jesus before these two guys, they push Jesus to their final hopeful destination. They want Jesus to get in front of the Roman governor, Pilate. They wanted Pilate to order Jesus' crucifixion. And sort of just to help us all get back on the treadmill of what's going on here in the story, 
Earlier in the evening, before our text for today, the Passover meal had concluded. Jesus and his disciples had full stomachs. You recall his disciples have very heavy eyelids, but Jesus had a heavy heart. He knew it was coming. Meanwhile, just a short walk away, in some dark corner of the city, Jesus was being betrayed, and a plan was being hatched to arrest him and condemn him. And minutes later, we saw last week, Jesus steps up to die, right? He's wrongfully arrested, and his disciples melt into the night. So Jesus and the band of the accusers make this 10-minute walk from the place of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane to Caiaphas' house, which we just read about a few minutes ago. And so Jesus' trial begins. And so let's call our first witness to the stand this morning. Witness number one, those who reject Jesus because they don't fairly inspect Jesus. I wonder if this is you this morning. Have you rejected Jesus because you haven't fairly inspected Jesus? Before moving to Abington a few years ago, we lived in the city in this little neighborhood called Fox Chase. We always called it fake Philly because there were single-family homes and like green spaces in front of houses called yards. Um, Over time, though, we realized that our house had this really weird anomaly. Looking from the outside, there were three windows along the left side of the house. But from the inside of the house, there were only two windows. This was strange. So I took a closer look at this very mysterious window. It was the middle one. I noticed that you couldn't see through it. So we popped back inside to investigate, and the only place it could be was the bathroom. But the bathroom didn't have a window. Right? But after further investigation, we discovered that the previous owners had covered over the window with a shower stall. The window was there all along, but we could not see through it. Our first witnesses today, for them, Jesus was there, obviously, he's standing right in front of them. But they couldn't see him, the real God-man, the creator of the universe. Do you have coworkers like this, friends, family? Maybe you're still kind of undecided on this Jesus character. You've heard of him, you've read of him, but you don't really see what the rest of us in here might see. You're in good company, but our hope today would be that you would exit that company, that you would see Jesus for all the beauty and wonder that he is. Jesus is right here in this book, the true soul-saving Jesus. But if you want to see the true Jesus, you do have to do a little bit of investigating. But don't reject Jesus just because you're unwilling to inspect Jesus. That's what these guys are doing in the text. Notice that there was no intention to give Jesus a fair trial at all. There was no inspection of the truth. To the contrary, we learn in Matthew 26 and then in Mark 14 that the religious authorities have repeatedly sought false testimony against Jesus to convict him. You see, Jesus endangered their own grip of power and influence. Mark 15 tells us that the religious political leaders of the day held deep envy in their hearts for Jesus. They hated that he had replaced them as the central religious figure in the lives of the people. He had to be done away with. But they couldn't dig up any dirt on Jesus. They were so frustrated. According to Jewish law, all they needed, all they needed 
was at least two corroborating testimonies to convict, and they couldn't even dig that up. So now the high priests are going to get in on the gig. In verse 19, they begin to ask Jesus about his teaching. And do you see what Jesus says there in verse 21? He's like, yo, what are you asking me for? Ask those people who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I've said. Go do a little digging on your own. Search for yourselves. Inspect the claims that I've made. Ask the eyewitnesses and see if their witness actually proves true. Well, it's the middle of the night. Annas is probably like, ah, let the young guy handle this. I've served my time. What do I have a son-in-law for if not to hand off annoying cases like this in the middle of the night? So he sends Jesus to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was, if you can recall, the current high priest. We don't hear much about this interchange. The next time we pick up the story in verse 28, Jesus is being led to the Roman governor's headquarters. You know his name. It's Pilate. Now, Pilate's sort of permanent place of rule would not have been in Jerusalem. He lived about 75 miles south of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean in a city called Caesarea. But during the high feasts, like the really big feasts in Jerusalem, this particular one was called Passover, during these high, fe- high feasts each year, Rome would send, send some of their big hitters into the city to take up residence and to let the large uh, Jewish cities know and remind them who was in charge. Rome was in charge, and Rome was there to keep the peace. Well, since the governor, in this case Pilate, didn't take up permanent residence in Jerusalem, there was a Roman headquarters directly adjacent to the Jewish temple. And I, I took a screenshot here just to show you a little bit. That little side piece off the temple there was where Rome set up shop and where Pilate would have lived um, and where, where he would have done his business from. This little spot there off the temple was called the Antonia Fortress. It was named after Mark Antony. So it was from here that Pilate established his rule in the city during the bustling holiday of Passover. The city is bursting at the seams, and Rome was pressing its thumb thumb in to let them know who was in power. And so this is where they led Jesus in the early morning hours of that Passover Friday to that little Antonia fortress. I'm sure Pilate was a little perturbed. In the middle of the night, a band of soldiers had led Jesus into his headquarters where he eats and sleeps and works. But look closely here. According to Jewish tradition, the Jews couldn't enter the dwelling places of Gentiles, of non-Jews. Do you see that there in verse 28? They wouldn't go in to that Antonia fortress, even though Jesus had to be led in. So Pilate has to dress himself and come out to meet them. I bet in verse 29, he's like yawning. It's like, ugh. What, what accusation do you bring against this man, and why is it so pressing for you to be here right now? Well, here's another picture for you. That I, it's just a screenshot from a movie, but I thought it might give you a sense for um, them waiting outside of the, the fortress and him having to go back up the steps and into his place to meet with Jesus and then back out and down the steps to chat with um, the Jews there. In verse 30, it's clear that they still have nothing on Jesus. They can't even answer Pilate's question. They continue to reject the truth because they have not fairly inspected the truth. This morning, have you rejected Jesus? Is it for a reason similar to these Jews? Have you you really, truly assessed Jesus? And have you found him lacking? If you have, I would love to hear what that is. I would love to talk with you about that. Well, Pilate's not dumb. 
he knows that there's nothing to pin on Jesus here. And he wants to wash his hands of it. He doesn't want any part of this. He's got bosses too. He doesn't want trouble in Jerusalem. He'll get in trouble if there's trouble in Jerusalem. He doesn't want a riot under his watchful eye. His Christmas bonus is on the line. So he just wants peace. And he wants a paycheck. So he says in verse 31, Take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. But the Jews respond with, Look, that, that won't work. We don't want him fined. We don't want him in prison. We want him dead. In verse 31 again, they say, look, it is not lawful, according to Roman law, it's not lawful for us, the Jews, to put anyone to death. See, Rome had banished Jews from executing the death penalty. Instead, all of these executions had to run through Roman courts of law. And so John adds this very interesting bit of commentary here. Look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Well, what words had Jesus spoken that were going to be fulfilled here? How does the Jews pressing Pilate here, pushing Jesus back into the Roman courts, how does that pave the way for the fulfillment of this prophecy? It's taken from John 12. Here's what it says. Verse 32, And I, Jesus talking here, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That's back in John 12. Here we are in John 18. Obviously, here in John 12, Jesus is predicting his own cross death, where his body would be lifted up onto a cross for the world to see. And so this whole interchange between Pilate and Jesus and the Jews is really important because it puts Jesus' supremacy. You have to sort of read between the lines here. But it puts his supremacy as sovereign on full but very subtle display. Remember, the Jews weren't allowed to crucify anyone while under Roman rule, which is what they were under. Nor would they have wanted to crucify anyone. They thought that crucifixion was a disgusting, worldly, godless display. But we still see them pursuing it here. The only way Jesus was going to get crucified was by the Romans. And the only way Rome was going to crucify Jesus was if he had broken their law. But Jesus hadn't broken Roman law. So chances were not high that he would actually be crucified. Which is why Jesus' prophecy about the type of death he was going to die is so interesting. This was, verse 32, to fulfill prophecy. So the, the whispers throughout the Old Testament, and even Jesus' own prophetic words, weren't just that Jesus would die. It wasn't just that the Messiah was going to die, but that he would die, here it is, in a particular way. Jesus couldn't just fall off a cliff. He couldn't just die of natural causes or be trampled in a stampede or stoned to death. He couldn't have done these things and accomplished redemption. In God's economy, the sort of death, this sort of death would not have covered the debt that our sins have earned. The prophets didn't just predict the Messiah would die, but that he would die by means of crucifixion. So what we see here is the Jews unwittingly playing right into Jesus' hands. The irony is so thick. The Jews are piling up pressure to crucify Jesus, which would, unbeknownst to them, make their salvation possible through Jesus. This is wildly ironic. What a good and funny God we serve. 
And this is another subtle reason to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. He's in complete control of this whole thing. He's pulling all the strings with Annas and Pilate as his puppets. But the strings that he's pulling are ensuring his own redemptive death. What a savior Jesus is. So the Jews wanting to kill Jesus don't take the time to inspect Jesus' truth claims. And now we're going to see Pilate employing that same foolish strategy. We can see it pretty clearly there in his line of questioning. He's accommodated the Jews by coming out to speak with them. Now he turns, you can see it in verse 33, he turns and heads back up into his place where Jesus is waiting. And he says the verse, in verse 33, so are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, did you say this on your own accord or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answers him in verse 35, and I bet you he's sleepily incredulous right now. Am I a Jew? Your own nation, he's probably pointing back down the steps just outside to the Jews who brought him there. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What is it that you've done? Why do they want to kill you so bad? Pilate is, is kind of baiting Jesus here a little bit. He's trying to get him to say something that will show Pilate that Jesus is worthy of crucifixion from Rome's perspective. And what would that be? Well, a claim to kingship from Jesus would have rendered Jesus worthy of crucifixion. If this Jesus that Pilate is looking in the eyes right now, if this Jesus was a threat to Caesar, then Pilate would need to put an end to this so that he could, in fact, get his Christmas bonus. But if not, if not, Pilate has no real interest in Jesus. And Jesus does not exactly make this easy on Pilate here. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Basically, look, Pilate, if I wanted to be king, would I have told my guy Peter to put his sword down a few minutes ago in the garden? And then when he nicked your guy up, would I have healed his ear? I'm not after your kingdom, Pilate. My kingdom is not even from this world. Pilate's confused in verse 37. Wait, wait, so you are a king? What are you saying, Jesus? And Jesus is like, look, that's your term, not mine, Pilate. Here's why I came, verse 37. If you want to call me a king, let me tell you what my kingdom is all about. 37, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus was indeed about to bear witness to the most stunning truth the world has ever seen. The truth that God so loved the world that he sent his one unique son. But when Pilate hears this truth, he's unmoved. He dismisses and even disputes the truth instead of digging into it. When he is challenged, he even makes a mockery at the concept of truth. We learned a little bit about this today in our mobilized class. See it there in verse 38? What even is truth? Who's got the corner of the market on truth? Well, after Pilate hears this, he's kind of like, okay. So he walks back out to the Jews and says, look, he isn't trying to be king. He's talking about something else. I don't actually know what he's talking about, but he's not talking about becoming the king. It's something else. And it's sad. I think it's sad that Pilate poses this question, what even is the truth? 
but he doesn't, he doesn't stay there and wait for the answer. Lots of us do this, I think. Friend, if you have not taken the time to investigate the central character of this book from beginning to end, to test and see if he truly is who he says he is, then I encourage you this morning not to waste another moment. You ever hear about this big sale just a day late from a friend? And you ask your friend, why didn't you tell me? Tell me in enough time to make good use of this amazing sale. The only way you could have known about it is if they told you about the sale, but they didn't. And you so badly wanted to pay less for something that you wanted or needed. Well, people, I am that friend here today. I'm here to tell you that you're not a day late. You're right on time. And that that thing that you so badly want, peace, joy, fulfillment, purpose, eternal life, it's not that you can pay less for it with a special deal or coupon that's offered here. You don't have to pay anything for it. It's already paid for. Jesus says it there in verse 37. This is the whole reason for his entire existence. It's why he was born, to bring the truth. There is no other way for you to get, for you to get the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. But Pilate's response sounds a lot like our own times, postmodern understanding of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, ah, he's a good dude, but nothing to offer with regard to hard, objective truth. In fact, there is no objective truth. You have your truth, I'll live mine. What even is truth? Says Pilate. He doesn't inspect Jesus. He ignores him, scoffs at him. Friends, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, don't ignore Jesus. Investigate. And I truly believe that a fair investigation of Jesus will leave you, even the most skeptical of you in the room this morning, will leave you being forced to deny some pretty clear realities or to shove aside some pretty blatant evidence that Jesus was, in fact, who he, says, who he said he was. But I want to encourage you to, at the very least, take some time to inspect Jesus. Look into him today. So let's very briefly here call forward our second type of witness. Those who deny Jesus because following him costs too much. Those who deny Jesus because following him costs too much. In verse 15, John tells us that after Jesus was arrested, Peter followed along behind the crew. And then Mark tells us, another gospel writer, says that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. He was close, eh, but not too close. Even as Peter tried to keep an eye on Jesus out in the courtyard around the fire, he was trying to blend in, refusing to associate himself with Jesus, and yet not wanting to be too far from him either. How do you think Peter felt that night as he sort of slinked through the darkness behind that crowd of which Jesus was a part, and then he finally melts into that crowd around the fire? Surely the words that he'd spoken directly to Jesus just moments earlier thumped like a drum in his head. He said, Jesus, even if everybody deserts you, I will not. I'll stay faithful. And now Peter's living a lie, a broken promise to the king of the universe. I'm sure he felt this heart-thumping terror. We all would have. It's a profoundly awkward situation. He's horribly nervous. He's deeply fearful. He's full of shame. He denied his dear Savior 
and his dear friend again and again and again. Mark tells us that when he was there warming himself by the fire, he was confronted by a girl. You can see it there in verse 17. And Mark tells us that Peter couldn't even bring himself to say Jesus' name. Instead, he denied his Redeemer and indicated that he, and these words ring cold and harsh. Peter says, I don't even know this man of whom you speak. I don't know him. We never met. You ever been in the same place as Peter? Afraid to sort of associate yourself with the exclusive claims of Christ? I, I was debating this with a friend not too long ago. And we were talking about the exclusivity of Christ, how Jesus is the only way to God. And he's convinced, he likes Jesus. Jesus is a way to God, but he's not the way to God. He just can't fathom a God that would limit access to himself by means of one man, one path. The exclusive claims of the Bible will be offensive to many with whom you speak. I wonder if that's too high a price for you to pay. It was for Peter in that moment. There are moments when we're unwilling to pay this price, but we, we shouldn't be unwilling. This forever king who emptied himself, who humbled himself, took on the form of man, and gave up his life for us. Thankfully, Peter's story doesn't end here. It doesn't end with lies and broken promises. Other gospel writers tell us that after he denied Jesus three times, Peter broke down and wept. This is not an insignificant detail. It's not just some thematic narrative texture added to give the story some dramatic zest. Peter's tears represented his hope, and they represent our hope too. True repentance and help comes when we realize the weight of our sin and the depth of our need. The weight of our sin and the depth of our need. Jesus is in the business of transforming fearful traitors like Peter into courageous preachers like Peter. If you this morning want to see Jesus for who he truly is, you have to reckon with who you really are. This is hard. You're a rotten sinner who needs rescuing. Me too. When you come to reckon with who you are and see Jesus for who he is, you'll often, like Peter, be met with tears. I don't deserve this. This is good news for Peter. His repentance was good news for Peter, and it's good news for us. In God's economy, in God's economy, contrition, not perfection, is a sign of true conversion. Contrition, not perfection, is a sign of true conversion. Did Peter's denial of Jesus mean that he would be denied entrance into the kingdom? No way. Not a chance. Peter repented and he was used in mighty ways by God. Your denial of Jesus in word or in deed should be followed up with contrition, not with self-condemnation, beating yourself. Peter was not beyond the promise of gospel grace, and neither are you this morning. We in Jesus' church can be so honest about our sin, fallenness, our brokenness. We can be honest about it simply because we are so convinced of grace. We all, though, tend to prefer, I think, wallowing in our sin. We like to pay for our own sin by making ourselves feel bad. We make ourselves feel really, really bad. Don't we subtly think this? Oh, if I can just spin up a few days of 
generally good or godly living. I'll feel better about myself, and then I can, then I can really do some really good things for God. This is gospelless, hopeless thinking that at least I am guilty of engaging in a lot. We know Peter sins here, but he doesn't stay down. Jesus lifts him up. Peter confesses, repents, and God uses him. We know there's forgiveness, and hear this, there's forgiveness, but not just forgiveness, there's usefulness after sin. Forgiveness and usefulness after sin. This is so what's so refreshing, I think, about the word of God, that even with the most devoted followers of Christ, like Peter, we still get honest pictures of sinners. Even Christ's apostles, the guys who knew him best, had deep needs for gospel grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded more. I want to close today with an encouraging irony and a concerning irony. Two ironies. The first, a concerning one. The trial of Jesus was actually the trial of Pilate and not us. So when Pilate is breaking things down with Jesus, Jesus actually subtly takes over the conversation. And he puts Pilate on the stand with aim at Pilate's soul. I mean, Jesus preached the gospel to him right there in verse 37. It was there for the taking. Jesus' body was on a Roman stand, but Pilate's soul was in God's courtroom. And yours is this morning too. Jesus has aim at your soul. He wants it. He wants to redeem it, to renew it, to refresh it. Both biblical and secular history tell us that Pilate was not known for his integrity. He was not a very good leader. And this account, I think, proves that point. Pilate offers the people a substitute for Jesus. He's like, okay, if you want me to put Jesus on death row, I need to take someone off of death row. I need a substitute. How about Barabbas? Barabbas was a robber. And all the people are excited. They're elated about this exchange. They'll take anything over Jesus being with them. They wanted innocent Jesus dead and depraved Barabbas released. This is, this is wild when it's happening in real time. They say, we don't want the redeemer. We want the robber. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And here's the irony. The name Barabbas means son of a father. History tells us that Barabbas' surname was Jesus. Jesus was just a common name uh, of the day. Barabbas' surname was Jesus. So you have Jesus the Christ, son of the father, given in exchange for Jesus Barabbas, son of a father. And this, is, this should concern us a little bit this morning because this is probably hits closer to home than we want it to. Is there anything that you want more than Jesus, like this crowd did? If there's anyone you'd rather enjoy a relationship with more than Jesus, there's some hardness in your heart that needs to be cut out. Right here, they prefer a robber to the righteous one of God. But who is it for you, I wonder this morning? Is there a relationship you'd prefer to have over yours with the Lord? A relationship with money, with sports, maybe with your kids' sports, with your bed, with pornography, with that illicit relationship that's sparking at work? If that's the case, 
You should be concerned. You have a hard heart. What's keeping you from Jesus? If you're like these people and your heart is leading you to pick something or someone over him, smash that desire with all the grace-fueled, spirit-empowered effort you can muster up. There is no one more lovely, more desirable, and good, and delightful, and joy-giving, and grief-sustaining, and soul-saving than Jesus. Fuel your love for him by killing off those other desires. The whole point of this text is to put Pilate and those people and us on trial. Who is the true king of your life? The second irony I want us to see, and we wrap with this, the trap set for Jesus was actually set by Jesus. The trap set for Jesus was actually set by Jesus. So if you can, rewind in this story a couple of hours. Imagine Jesus as he pushes out from that table. They've just finished the Passover meal. He goes down the stairs. He opens that front door out into the chilly night. Remember, they had to have a fire to warm themselves up by. So it's a chilly night. He opens that door. Turning right takes him toward the Kidron Valley and then ultimately the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be arrested. Or he could turn left and go away from that place. But... Knowing what would happen to him, you can see that in verse 4, knowing what would happen to him, Jesus turns right. If you recall, Judas has already left that place. He left the room and was, in his mind, conspiring against Jesus with Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate. But Judas wasn't playing with the full deck of cards. As he left that upper room and Satan cheered, Jesus, in his heavy spirit, turning right, must have been thinking, checkmate, I got you. So while the feelings of smugness must be setting in for Annas and Caiaphas and Judas in verse 15, as Jesus walks into that courtyard, probably with his hands tied behind him, what they didn't realize is that their trap was actually Jesus' trap. In that Jesus' trap was ironically bent on freeing all of his people from the death trap that all of us are bound for. I mean, think about this. Jesus had practically trained Judas to show up at that place in the garden. I wouldn't put it past Jesus to even have mentioned it during that Passover meal that they shared. After this, maybe we'll go down and spend some time in the garden. Judas knew exactly where to entrap Jesus because Jesus led him there. But why? Why would Jesus do this? Jesus turned right. I don't know if it was right. That's just for the sake of argument, okay? Jesus turned right out of that house so that he could turn your entire future around. No amount of humiliation would halt his mission to exalt the Father by rescuing us. Nothing would stop him. He was on gospel mission. Jesus, the God-man, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, is being held prisoner and condemned to death? That's ironic for you and me. Judas' checkmate was actually Jesus' checkmate. Even at his trial, we don't find Jesus trying to or seeking to have his charges dismissed so that he can escape arrest and death. No, he leans into the questioning to actually be heard, not to be freed. He wants, to, he wants the public 
to hear the things that he has to say. He wants them to be known so that everyone can hear and see them and make a judgment, make their own judgment on his identity. I opened this morning by telling you that you should be glad that I wasn't singing the theme song to a 70s courtroom drama. Well, that was true. But in a few minutes, we get the awesome privilege to sing together a theme song for all of us who have been put on trial by God and have been rescued in that courtroom by Jesus. Before the righteous judge's throne, we stood guilty, condemned to death. But then Jesus walks up, son of the Father, all of us, the Barabbases, the robbers, the lusters, the sinners. Jesus steps up, and all of us go free. And Jesus is the one who gets brutally killed. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. What a savior. And so now we can sing in a few minutes. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Because in God's courtroom, Jesus stands as our substitute. And because he stands as our substitute, we can sing loudly, live boldly, live freely, and celebrate joyfully. The trap set for Jesus was set by Jesus that we might be set free. Amazing grace. Will you pray with me? Jesus, what can we say but thank you? It's amazing grace. I pray that you would help us to really revel in the fact that we have a strong and perfect plea this morning because in that courtroom you stood condemned to die so that we don't have to stand in your courtroom condemned to die.